Dan, I think your brain works in a special way. I noticed in 1998, you come out with the Great Divide, right? Yeah. And then in 1999, they have the Clinton trials and we have the Great Divide in this country. And then in 2019, you write the song, You're Not Alone. And then, hey, COVID hits in 2020 and we are alone. (laughs) So I'm wondering if you're like this modern day Nostradamus and what what is the next calamity that you're predicting for the world? Because I want to be in on it early. Or the next stock pick, whatever you got. The problem is I can't do it with my conscious mind. I have to do it (laughs) in songs and the messages only become clear later on. That doesn't help. That doesn't help. (laughs) Hello, Cleveland. Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most final tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets kind of weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller a comedy writer in L.A. and lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Willendas. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead and lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious. Our guest today is two-time Grammy Award-winning songwriter Dan Wilson from the band's Semisonic and Trip Shakespeare. We're going to talk to Dan about how Carol King handled him nixing one of her ideas for their song One True Love why Adele chose to put the demo version of their song, Someone Like You, on her mega album, 21, and the true story of why I was a Dan Wilson fanboy long before hearing his hit, Closing Time. So, without further ado, let's go to the T-M-E-P show! It really puts perspective on things, doesn't it? Not too much. There's too much perspective now. Alex, some rock songs are not about what they seem. I mean, you can just imagine what Little Richard's Tutti Frutti is about. (laughs) But over the past decade, we've also learned that the Beatles song Blackbird is probably about the civil rights movement. Why do you say probably? Didn't Paul McCartney say that himself? Yes. But you know, you never read about that interpretation when the song was released. And get this, Eurasian blackbirds are very common in Liverpool. Is that true? Are you going ornithologist on me here? Yes, I'm going all ornithological on you here. It's true. Hmm. But it sounds like you're sort of doubting Sir Paul. Listen, I hope that's what it's about. It's a great song regardless. However, as we all saw in Peter Jackson's Beatles documentary last year, The song Get Back was originally about immigration, but Paul chickened out somewhere along the way and rewrote the lyrics to be more innocuous. So I kind of feel he might have shied away from a song that had any kind of message. I hope I'm wrong, but I'm dubious. Don't you have a song that's a metaphorical bird song? I do. Thanks for remembering. It's a lot cooler if you remember it instead of me bringing it up myself. (laughs) (laughs) It's called Raven, and it's off my band, The Falling Willenda's second album, Be Little. And, you know, it's a little love song to my wife, Lois, who had black hair at the time and could fly. (laughs) (laughs) And she's still a beauty. I love that song, Alan. 
You know, it's also been covered, believe it or not, by a couple artists, just like the songs of our guest today, Dan Wilson, who is one of the top songwriters in the biz. Yes. And one of Dan's songs, I feel like almost everybody knows, is Closing Time with Semisonic. And like Blackbird, it's not what people think it's about, bar time. It's actually about the birth of his first kid. It is. Closing time. One last call for alcohol. Finish your whiskey and beer. I think you're being a little too effing literal here, Alan. I think it's more about the first stanza. Closing time. Open all the doors and let you out into the world. Before we say anything more, let's just go to Dan, okay? And listeners, before it's closing time on this episode... Please be sure to rate, review, and follow Too Much Effing Perspective on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. But first, a short break. And now a songwriter who's so versatile, he's written with Weezer, John Legend, and Pink, Semisonic's Dan Wilson. Dan, sometimes when you're recording, you can't beat the magic on the demo. Didn't that happen with you and Adele on her 21 album? They ended up using the demo you two made for someone like you? Yeah, it was, that's true. That was the demo. It was me playing the piano and her singing. And um, they made a couple of versions of someone like you for the album. They made a kind of a R&B slow jam with an orchestra version. That was pretty good. And I think when they listened back to the original demo, that just kind of had captured some kind of crazy vibe that the other versions didn't quite have. And Adele, being very wise beyond her years, went with the vibe as opposed to going with the thing that took more effort or was more expensive or whatever. Right. And that reminds me of a story. The three of us are all upper Midwesterners. Alan and I grew up in Wisconsin, and you're obviously uh, from Minnesota. We probably all remember the band Material Issue Mm -hmm. from the late 80s, early 90s. And I was once talking to those guys and heard the story about how they did demos for every song for their record. And to your point, the energy was so good that they convinced the label, let's just use this as our album, right? And the label still yeah. gave them the full advance. They all went instantly into higher tax brackets. Incredible. It's interesting because it's just sometimes really hard to distinguish your intention and your plan from what really happened. And it's a little bit like the bands that are infamously way better live or the artists who have legendary gigs and you know okay records some people are so utterly there in the moment and when it's some kind of formal setting with money flowing out the door and red light turns on it's very different than someone who just leaps up onto a stage and just gives it their all you know well speaking of leaping onto a stage and giving it your all We are about 35 years out, Dan, from the first time that you and I crossed paths. Wow. And I'd like to share one of my earliest memories of that time, if that's all right with you. So this is probably about 1989, and you were on stage with your band Trip Shakespeare at the NAR Bar in Madison, Wisconsin, which was near the, the University of Wisconsin campus. And you were standing there triumphantly on stage, your guitar hanging at your side, and proudly in your hands was a copy of your new album, Are You Shakespeareans? The vinyl with the album sleeve and of course covered with a cellophane. And you were moving it back and forth, like shining the stage lights into the eyes, like a spotlight of the crowd. It just had this shit eating grin on your face. Like you could like, this is really fun. We could just do this all night long. 
<laughs> it would be like me to choose an annoying thing to do to the audience to celebrate my own joyful moment. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It just it made me wonder like wow. do you have a experience from earlier in your career that you would think of as being one of your first spinal tap moments? Oh boy. First of all, a, a kind of overview of me and spinal tap is the first several times I saw it it wasn't funny. I found it super sad and I and sort of I felt secondhand humiliation each time and I really had to get some distance from those early touring days to really appreciate how amazing and how funny the movie was because I really just basically took it personally the first several times I saw it and all the stupid stuff that happens in the movie and all the misguided decisions and all, all those moments of being thwarted by the people in the business that Spinal Tap went through were also painfully familiar. Trip Shakespeare always had these grand and hilariously arts and crafts kind of staging concepts, a little bit like Stonehenge, you know. <laughs> I think we had similar urges, but we did them in a very cartoony way, so they were already stupid. They were silly and they were whimsical. Like we did a whole bunch of shows with giant upholstery foam sculpted angel wings that we would wear. And we would just like put our <laughs> guitars on over the angel wings and they were like really big. They spread out like four feet on either side of us. And we all would have to go sideways through the stage door to get on to perform. It wasn't really spinal tapish because we knew they were ludicrous, you know. But there were definitely moments of like, the scene in the movie where they're down in the basement of the club in Cleveland, and they're trying to get onto the stage, but every time they turn around, they find themselves either back where they started or in some other little janitorial space. And we definitely had moments where we were lost in the bowels of a theater, laughingly shouting hello Cleveland to each other, <laughs> but unable to find the actual stage. So we actually almost used the film as kind of a you know, it's like stages along life's way. Each stupid thing that happened to us in real life, we would have to sort of mark it. Oh, this is just like Spinal Tap. Jacob, your drummer, basically wrote a whole book of Spinal Tap moments, right? <laughs> I'll tell you the title. So you want to be a rock and roll star, how I machine gunned a room full of record executives and other true tales from a drummer's life. Yeah, Jacob's book. It's funny because we're such good friends, but we have such different perspectives about what happened and how it happened. One big difference between me and Jake is that I go into a lot of situations without any kind of clear or visualized expectation. But Jacob has it all thought out, like he knows exactly what it's going to be like. Whereas I'm always basically pleasantly surprised because I didn't expect anything in particular. He's quite often stunned at the difference between his visualization and what actually <laughs> goes down. Even like the subtitle, How I Machine Gunned a Room Full of Record Executives. We were going to perform in a conference room for a bunch of people from our label. And Jacob was already filled with pique at the label for the various comical errors that they had made or things that they didn't help us with or whatever. And I think I had opened my guitar case with its lid facing the people and Jacob mimed reaching into the guitar case and pulling out a, a machine gun and like shooting them all. And it was for us very funny, but for them, the victims, I think it was actually really alarming. You know, the band just pretended to shoot us all before busking their songs. 
But I think that was maybe a reflection of Jake's general <laughs> sense that things were going horribly wrong. Jake was the drummer of Semisonic, not of Trip Shakespeare, just for clarity. And that's right. You were on MCA, right? Which is an acronym, Music Cemetery of America. So, I mean, he was just like yeah, yeah. filling the slots, right? He, he was just filling up that cemetery. It's strange because if MCA was in some ways the gang that couldn't shoot straight, on the other hand, for a time, Semisonic was the only good thing happening for them. They had lost Steely Dan and Tom Petty shortly before signing us. They basically, <laughs> like, every good thing that ever happened to them was now over. They had nothing better to do than to try to help us have hits. It was the doldrums for them. And for us, it was like, oh, wow, this is working out. I heard that when Dave Matthews signed to RCA Records, RCA had a similar reputation. Mm -hmm. And I was told that Dave's manager, Corin Capshaw, said, they're so stupid there that they're just going to do everything that I say. And that's exactly what I want. <laughs> you can't have too much hubris, but on the other hand, maybe you can. Corin <laughs> Capshaw, it's fine. <laughs> right. Dan, what is your favorite moment in the movie This is Spinal Tap? When they're looking at the amp, which has all the knobs that go to 11, and Marty says, why can't you just label the loudest point on all the knobs 10? And the moment that I love is when Nigel looks blankly at Marty for a, an awkwardly long time and finally... It says these go to 11. <laughs> like, it's, what is going through Nigel's mind at, at this time? It's like Marty is just a child and he doesn't understand how amps work. <laughs> how can I explain it to this man any more thoroughly? These go to 11. Just that moment where he's pauses. It's just the most wonderful acting. Well, that's like every guitar tech I've ever had trying to explain to me how to use one of my own pedals. You know, I'm like, wait, yeah. if you just push on it, it works, right? No, you got to plug it in. What do you mean? Isn't this wireless? Um, yeah, well, that's no. a Nigel trait, right? He's so gormless. One of the reasons why it's painful for a musician to watch Spinal Tap is it really, really does shine a bright light on how useless we are for any other task. Like, uh, true. Those guys, they think they have competencies, but actually they only have shredding is the only <laughs> one thing that they can do. <laughs> that is sad. Dan, you may remember that I was Radiohead's original US tour manager on Pablo Honey. And I oh, wow. kind of wondered about Tom York, right? I literally thought of this yesterday, this memory that I had back then of like going, you know, Tom is so smart and he's such a creative guy. I just wonder what he would have done if the music thing wouldn't have worked out. I can't imagine him like selling insurance yeah. or, you know, working at a finance company, or I can't imagine him being a letter carrier. It's kind of like, would he be washing dishes? I just don't know. Given what you said about Radiohead, I mean, they all knew each other from kids and they all formed around each other, like sort of sedimentary they each shaped to the other completely fully. And they created a context for Tom York to be utterly creative and totally himself. And luckily, they 
were the kinds of people who could do that with him so that he could live that sort of very unique role and that unique life. And I completely resonate with what you're saying. Like at festivals and stuff, talking to those guys, I really enjoyed interacting with them and I admired them so much. But there's nothing like in the moment to moment that makes you think, okay, these people are just the most incredible geniuses. They were like dudes who found a context where life worked for them. And they probably, I agree, wouldn't have been great insurance people or, you know, mail carriers or whatever. Well, Jody Porter from Fountains of Wayne was on and he goes, I need a tour manager for my regular life. Yeah. Like that's the guys that are only comfortable on tour, right? They don't like being at home. It's like the Hurt Locker. Remember when Jeremy Renner comes back from Iraq and he doesn't know what to do with themselves. He feels much more comfortable in war. And the same with a lot of musicians. I relate to this in my personal life as well, but there's a funny story that Bono used to tell in interviews where if he had a break from tour and they were back in Ireland for, you know, three or four days, his wife would make him get a hotel room and she wouldn't let him come back to the house because he was still basically an animal that could not be caged. (laughs) (laughs) And and he just accepted this. It was just like, okay. That's so funny, Dan. I remember coming back from tour and I was living in Milwaukee at the time. I was roommates with my brother. And it was that same thing where I literally like walked through the apartment. I because I was so used to living in hotels, I dropped my towel on the floor. Yes. I took some packaging off of something, yes. just threw it on the couch. You know, my, my brother's walking behind me, collecting a pile of stuff. Oh He's God. like, what's yeah. up, man? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't do that. You actually can't do that. So yeah, I know. I know the whole vibe. It's funny because I came up in the pre-neurodivergency era, and there was no... OCD, and there was no ADHD, really. There was just starting to be like kids getting riddled in if they were hyperactive and things like that. But it was very, very nascent times for being atypical. And um, I was definitely always OCD, but it wasn't a thing. And I was functional, but I really needed a certain context in my life. And I basically wove together ways to work around myself. And I think if you're compensating, let's say, that's one way to put it. Like when I was in my 20s, if I had to pay a bunch of bills, I couldn't put them all in their separate envelopes, seal them up and bring them to the mailbox because at the mailbox, I'd have to open them all up and make sure that I put the right one in the right envelope. Then I'd have to bring them all back home and glue them back together. And then I'd go to the mailbox and I'd be like, oh, fuck, you know, and then I'd have to open them back up. (laughs) So what I discovered was I, I could only pay one bill a day. So today I'm paying the gas and I would pay the bill. I'd you know write a check. I'd put it in the envelope. I'd walk down the corner to the mailbox and, and mail the bill. And the, because there's no other bills in my hands, there's no confusion, I, I was fine. And it worked. But being in the arts and surrounding yourself with other nuts and making up a way to live a life with them and becoming more and more your crazy self. That's one of the reasons why the arts are full of misfits that have magically found the one slot that was going to work. So when I'm interacting with my peeps, I feel like I'm part of a community compensation 
project that everybody does with each other. And I think that's why people on the outside of the arts are threatened and irritated by musicians, among other people. I love that expression that you introduced here on Too Much Effing Perspective of this sedimentary foundation that musicians form around each other with respect to Radiohead. And it reminded me that's happened over time. It certainly wasn't easy all along. Yes, they knew each other as teens and high school kids and all that, which undoubtedly helped. But I remember on one of the tours I did with them, the bassist Colin Greenwood was complaining to one of their managers, Bryce Edge, that Tom just wouldn't listen to anybody. He was only listening to Johnny but wouldn't listen to anybody else. And I was there and I said, well, he's been okay with me lately. And Colin turns to me and said, that's a combination of fear and respect. But for the rest of us, it's not happening. (laughs) And I was just like, wow, Tom's afraid of me because I was terrified of him. You know, I've seen Alex in action as a tour manager and he is one to be reckoned with and to be frightened of. Yeah. He's got a bark and a bite. Oh yeah. Out of true respect, I say that. It is amazing. That's the strange authority sort of structure of a tour where the tour manager, supposedly employed by the artist, holds the leash of the artist. It's a very interesting dynamic. It's all roles, right? Like in a movie set, the AD is the guy that everyone's afraid of because he's barking the orders, not the director. The director tells the AD, you're the bad guy here. Sick him. (laughs) Right? Make it happen. I want to change directions a little bit here. It seems like you were born late because your collaborations with Adele, Taylor Swift, John Legend, and Pink remind me of the days of the Brill Building in New York, right? Where songwriters like Backrack and David and Lieber and Stoller churned out timeless classics for other artists. And I know you actually got to collaborate with probably the greatest songwriter of all the Brill people, Carol King. That must have been amazing. How did it come about? Uh, well, it got hooked up in a funny way because my manager, Jim, was talking to my publisher, John, and they were having some kind of argument about recouping or percentage points or some sort of like it was a <laughs> prickly business discussion. And my publisher, John, said, oh, Jim, can you hold? And he put Jim on hold and he came back and said, um, would Dan want to write a song with Carol King? <laughs> Bait and switch. And <laughs> the entire, you know, like the... the contentious part of the conversation vanished and yeah of course and he goes okay hold on (laughs) so he puts him on hold again comes back and says oh she'd love to she likes that song closing time she'd like to write a song with dan so i ended up on this writing session with carol so we met in a place in studio city i don't know was it a house it was a house with a kind of a garage in back that was sort of a studio space but it was not dad you were that's my house ah (laughs) <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, this place where I'm broadcasting from right now was Carol's daughter, Sherry Goffin's place, until I rented it. And back then, it acted like a business office for Carol. So when I came to look at the place the first time to check it out before renting, all of Carol's gold records and awards and a rock and roll plaque were decorating the walls. And the separate space in the back, which is now my wife's art studio, was originally a recording studio. But it wasn't like tricked out like a studio. It was like a couple of DA88s. Yeah. It's like very minimal. That's my, that's where I live. 
That's incredible. That's incredible. Okay, so I was in that place. Crazy. First of all, I had sort of imagined that Carol's house was going to be some crazy palace, you know, with a spiral staircase and, you know, the kind of place where like Marilyn Monroe would have lived in or something like that. But anyway, it's just, it was just a house in Studio City. And she had a top end Casio keyboard and it was no piano. It was like a Casio keyboard with a lot of buttons on it, but like the best of the worst, would you call it? I had the best session with her. We wrote a song that Semisonic ended up doing, One True Love, and she sang background vocals on it. And we were the only sort of alternative modern rock band who would have thought having Carol's voice loudly on our track was the greatest (laughs) thing ever. Like everyone else was so afraid of uncoolness. It'd be like having Neil Sedaka on your track. But we were like, yes, this is the best. Neil Sedaka, another Brill building guy. Yeah, crony of hers. But one of the great things was that she taught me a couple things during the session. She Not in the spirit of teaching, but just by example. Like at one point she sang a possible melody for a song we were working on. And literally they just would pop out like the whole verse melody. How about this? You know, like the whole thing. And I remember one time I was like, I'm not sure about that one. I don't know about that one. And she goes, okay, how about this? And she literally sang an entirely different, uh, you know, she didn't go like, but my idea is good. You know, like, why don't you like it? It's better than yours. Or She didn't give a fuck. And she just went straight to the next idea. Oh, how about this instead? This is Carol King allowing me to nix a concept, you know, and she just went straight to the next one. It was very powerful to realize that that's how it's done. I liked that. Did you just run with that power and just start nixing all her ideas? Yeah, I said no to everything. We never got a song. <laughs> and then she machine gunned you, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then right. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, it was all over. Yeah. There are bullet holes in the wall here, so maybe that's from that time. But there's another story about you bringing up how she wrote the Beatles cover Chains. Oh, yeah, yeah. I said it must be cool to have had the Beatles, who are one of our most influential artists ever, cover one of your songs, Chains. And she said, "Uh, except the Beatles considered me one of their influences. That is absolutely (laughs) awesome. I love that. Badass. And she's right, right? That's the truth. That's the truth. Yeah, of course. It it wasn't bullshit. It wasn't bluster. It was just her being accurate. Also, she did another thing that was funny like that. She, At one point, I played... uh, the song we were writing, she kind of mocked me on the semisonic song, One True Love, because she wrote the little piano ostinato at the beginning of the song that was almost like closing time upside down. Like, my, you know, closing time, John's piano part goes, da, 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 da. And hers goes, da, 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 da. And she played that thing. And I'm like, huh. And she says... I hear the kids all love this kind of stuff right now. <laughs> and at the time, I was like, really? You know, I was sort of horrified. <laughs> I was sort of like horrified by that statement. And years later, having gotten to know her a little bit better, I realized she was just tweaking me when she said that. But then later, I did the same to her because I played... Um, let's see if I can stretch this out here. I played this chord... In the song we were writing. It's totally her. It's totally ripped off of her. And I I said, what about this? And then I kind of like looked at her and I said, 
I imagine you might enjoy a little four over five. And she goes, that's not called four over five. That's called C over K. <laughs> <laughs> Another, like, basically, that's my F and chord. Did you say F-U-C-K? <laughs> oh! <laughs> oh! Whoa! <laughs> no, I was in the most reverential frame of mind. This house wouldn't still be around if you had said that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hey, listeners, you get to decide for yourselves if there's a reason Alan and I are unheralded musicians. At the end of every episode, we play a song from his band or my band. So stick around. I think that there's kind of a Spinal Tap moment in your collaboration with Oasis's Liam Gallagher. Oh. Really? I never heard about Isn't that. Is really? We had, we, it was he was most... funny, right? He was quirky, funny. Like He was great. In fact, the first time I met Liam... Gallagher was at a festival in England and Semisonic was kind of getting ready to go on stage and he literally burst into the room like an escaped zoo animal and <laughs> he got up and I can only describe it as though he got in all of our faces at once even though we were sitting in different <laughs> places in the room in the trailer and he goes which one of you writes the melodies and the other guys pointed at me him he writes the melodies. And Liam came over to me and he said, you Americans write shite melodies, Ooh. but your melodies are okay. Oh. And just at that moment, Mike, the keyboard player from Oasis, bursts into the trailer and says, oh my God, I just let him slip from my sight for a moment. I did <laughs> And he's in here. <laughs> he's like, and he goes, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he's like, Come, come, you know, Liam, like taking him by the shoulder and turning him around. And, and as he's leaving the trailer, he's turning his head back towards us saying, I'm so sorry. I just lost track of him for just a second. And they were gone. His minder. And the fact that he's the one giving you a hard time when it was his brother Noel that wrote all the songs, right? And wrote all the melodies like, you know. Did you ever want to duel Noel Gallagher because he famously dissed another one of your writing partners, Taylor Swift? Noel's greatest superpower is dissing people. So you can't really quibble about who he's dissing at any given time. <laughs> I just think his sort of epic disgruntlement and impatience with everybody else being such a dolt is the best. I don't know why I like it so much. He's like the British Abe Vigoda. Yeah, he's just the grumpiest, grumpy old man. And I, for some reason, I really enjoy it from him. And he's always been that way. Yeah. There's a hilarious article from New York Daily News, circa 2013. It's called, How Middle-Aged Dad Dan Wilson Became The, all in caps, Writer for Young Female Singers Like Adele, Taylor Swift, and Pink. And then it goes on to say, these are some quotes from you. I don't know a lot of guy stuff, admits Wilson. I don't know the names of any sports teams. I don't know what brands of beer there are. I don't know about parts of a truck. He said, however, I'm a really good listener. <laughs> and I'm going to just ask you, did you really grow up in Minnesota? Because I think that's bullshit. Okay. This is where I intersected with, for example, sports. When I was like 11 or 12, I got obsessed with 
football helmet designs. And I would copy them and draw them in profile and from the front as though, you know, those di diagrams of like airplanes in the great airplanes of World War II type of history right. books. They'd show it from above and from below and from the side and from the front, you know. So I would do that with the football helmets because I loved the idea that you had to get a logo that's basically a flat phenomenon to curve around a sphere and still make a kind of graphic sense. And so my friends would be like, oh, cool, man. You have a notebook full of drawings of all the football helmet designs. And I'm like, yeah. And they're, they're like, that's so, so cool. Show me, you know, show me Green Bay. And I say, yeah, it's so interesting how some of the teams really stretch the limits of how much you can wrap around, like the Rams logo wraps around most of the helmet. And my friends are like, immediately their eyes are glazing over, like <laughs> they don't give a shit <laughs> about the thing that I like about sports. Or I would be watching a game with friends, like a football game or a basketball game, and someone would do something amazing and I'd go like, oh, that was amazing. And Everyone in the room would be like, God damn it, Dan, that's the other side did that. <laughs> and I'd be like, but it was so beautiful. Like the way he jumped up was so cool. Shut up. Well, you thank know. you for saying the Packers instead of the Vikings. That that means a lot too. <laughs> We're both Packer fans here. Yeah. Well, see, even that, even my willingness to do that goes against the whole grain. Absolutely. So, like it's Obviously, I don't know the names of any beers if I can't even remember which team I'm supposed to mention. Well, you've proven you're a contrarian here again. <laughs> no, it's ignorance and disinterest. It's not being difficult. You like the designs, not the team. <laughs> I like the designs. I like the designs. When I was growing up, this guy who was actually a really tough guy, he had, you remember the football game that vibrated? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. My brother had that. All right. So yeah. he bought every team and painted them. And every number. Yeah. So he had the entire league accurately and Ooh. perfectly painted. The helmets were beautiful wow. for that stupid oh. game, which was- I love this guy. I wish I would have stolen them, but they were beautiful. But the joke of that game is the little robot players who were powered by the vibration of the field would literally all just immediately run off in the wrong direction. <laughs> And, and congregate in the corners or, you know, like uselessly, like the fall over and just be vibrating there. It was like a well, they, terrible simulation. Well, they renamed it uh, Monday Night CTE Football. Oh! So, yeah. Now it's a game that's played in, in hospitals. Oh, dear. Yeah. In the psych ward that you live in, Alan. Very sweet. So, Dan, I have a list. It's not a long list, but it is a list. Okay. of literal, what I would consider to be personal Spinal Tap moments between me and you. Okay. Number one, Trip Shakespeare comes to my apartment in Madison, Wisconsin for an after-show party. I think I gave your brother Matt my address or something. At about 1 a.m., my girlfriend and I are about to go to bed. There's a knock on the door, and there you all are. You come in, and you may remember my girlfriend. You commented at some point in the night to just the crowd – those two have 64 of the best teeth I've ever seen. <laughs> and uh, what the Spinal Tap moment part of this whole thing is that because you guys came over and we were such like fanboys and girls of Trip Shakespeare, oh we God. thought you were our buds at that point. Mm. And so mm. we came to other shows and stuff. And there was a time a little bit later where you were playing the Narbar again. 
and Matt had put me on the guest list. Yeah. And I said to you that night how great it was that Matt put us on the guest list. And you said, well, that's just money out of our pockets. <laughs> that's reeling them in and then pulling it out. And snacking them yeah. out. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I'm sorry. I just, I love that. That's very me, strangely. Yeah. I would definitely have to cop to it. I'm sure I said that. It showed how little I knew about the music business. I thought, well, they have a guarantee. Who cares? <laughs> They're getting paid either way. I, I didn't know about Overage at that time. Another one is when Semisonic was opening for the Bodines in Minneapolis. I was the Bodines tour manager as well. And I had to keep your set to 30 minutes in front of your hometown crowd because mm. the union rules of the theater were such that if we went beyond four hours for the whole thing or whatever, it was going to cost thousands of dollars. Overtime I felt really bad about insane, it. Yeah. Overtime. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But, nice. but, but Yeah. But, <laughs> but here you were playing in front of your hometown crowd. It's like half an hour. What? Yeah. So someone mentioned to me that you wanted to speak to me in the dressing room. And I thought, oh man, he's going to give me a hard time about this. I'm just really not in the mood for it. So I went up there and I walked in looking kind of glum and you, you know, stuck out your lower lip kind of like, oh honey, what's the matter? Right. And it, but it was at that point you said to me that, that Semi-Sonic was going to need a, a new tour manager next year. And was I interested? <laughs> and at that point I was feeling pretty fried and I told you that I was really tired of kissing ass to prima donnas and that pretty much shut down the conversation. Did you say that? <laughs> I did. <laughs> oh, I love that. So then the worst of all, Dan. Oh, there's more? Keep going. Don't stop. <laughs> we were both at a Radiohead show at the Greek Theater in LA. This was years okay. after I tour managed them. I remember that show. We just ran into each other backstage. Yeah. And I mean, it'd been many years since you and I'd seen each other, and I didn't know if you'd remember me. So I just started yammering. And my fiance, who's now my wife, was standing there. And I start talking. You know, after a couple of minutes, you actually brought out your polite upper Midwestern upbringing that I had completely left behind. And you said, oh, I'm Dan, by the way. And I'm like, I am such a dick. Nice. Don't even introduce my future wife to this guy. So again, <laughs> another spinal tap moment for the record books. See, but that's very sweet because that's a spinal tap moment where it's basically the, the difference between being 90% functional and polite and 100%, whereas the spinal tap moments are always down in the 5%, like absolutely, you know, idiotic loserdom to slightly less loserdom. That's the squeaky area that they're in. That's funny. I remember that show of Radiohead because the friends that I was with, it might have been Munson. I'm not sure, but... Yeah, I think he was there. John Munson, who was the bass player in Semisonic and Trip Shakespeare. So John, during the show, pointed back up into the trees above the amphitheater. And there were kids up in the trees, like they had climbed into all the trees to watch mm -hmm. the show. They're like kids way up in the air. It was really amazing. That happened at a Radiohead show at the Hollywood Bowl, too. And I remember Ed O'Brien calling it out from the stage. Yeah, we're really excited about everybody out in the trees. And there was like a literally a, a really loud cheer for all the people that a were- A roar from the trees. Okay, maybe that was the show. In fact, I think that was that show. Because I remember them calling it out. And, and then there was like the roar from the trees was actually kind of a phenomenon. That's kind of incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Just love it. Uh, awesome.
I read that closing time is not about bar time. It's about the birth of your first child, right? Mm, mm. And, and it makes me reconsider, like, what the hell are the Spinal Tap songs actually about? <laughs> like, like, I was thinking, Big Bottom, maybe it's about the 19... 1980- Just thinking about that song, yeah. Yeah, right. It's like, maybe it's the 1987 stock market crash, right? It was a big... <laughs> and, and Sex Farm is about sperm collection. Oh, my God. Well, okay, let me just say, I have a Spinal Tap moment about sperm collection. Okay, so oh, it's great. 1984. I'm in, I live in Chicago. I'm typing ads for the Chicago Reader. And I think, okay, I'm going to make some money. There's an ad for sperm donors. So I go, okay, so I'm going to go there. And basically they go, okay, here. They give you like a mason jar and they say, there's the bathroom. So what? That's it? That's it? So I leave. I I say, I can't do that, right? So then Uh I go there a week later thinking, okay, I can mentally do this. This is a challenge now. So I do my business it's not a sexual thing. It's a scientific conversation. And I do okay. it and they say, okay, give it to the Russian tech. So I go up to this big Russian woman and I give it to her and she looks at it and she goes, is that all? Oh, so bad. Spinal tap moment. She says it to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should have said, it's never enough for you, Olga. It's never enough. <laughs> Where can our listeners find out more about your music, your latest projects, that kind of thing? I'm pretty active on social media. I'm pretty active on Instagram. I have a new EP, and I'm pretty excited about that music. And I'll be piping that in my own way on TikTok and Instagram and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then my biggest pet project is that I made a deck of cards that each card has a very short and I would say helpful piece of advice for musicians on it. It's a little bit like Brian Eno's Oblique Strategies, but it's not oblique, and it's much more about practical ways to get out of a rut or practical ways to finish a song that doesn't seem to want to be finished or practical ways to move your music life forward. This deck of cards is called Words and Music in Six Seconds, and I've been basically quietly trying to sell it to as many musicians as I can. And I've been enjoying the fact that people will send me pictures from around the world, like with the the deck in their studio. Oh, every morning we uh, open up the words of music in six seconds and we randomly choose a card and we use that advice for the day. That is really cool. cool. And where can people find the deck? It's linked at the beginning of my Twitter account, bio of my Instagram. It's on my webpage, which is danwilsonmusic.com. It's everywhere I'm selling shit. Everywhere. (laughs) Everywhere you need to be. Thanks so much. This was fantastic. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Such a pleasure. Great to speak with you again. Alex, one thing I didn't bring up in our interview with Dan is that back in the 90s, Stereo Review Magazine reviewed Semisonic's album, The Great Divide, they equated them positively with the Falling Willendas. So at that moment in their career, my band was a reference point. So it's amazing to me how far I've fallen behind. (laughs) And you got to really envy Dan's career because, you know, he starts out as this regional Midwest music phenom in Trip Shakespeare. He goes on to become this indie darling with a hit 
song and a Grammy with Semisonic. And then now he's one of the top, top songwriters in the entire business. You're an artist in the way that you can make a self-referential compliment and kind of hide it as a self-deprecating comment. But anyway, well done, sir. Well done. That's called a humble brag. (laughs) Okay, got it. But in any case, regarding Dan, you can see why people love working with him, right? I mean, he collaborated so well with us two knuckleheads in this episode, and it's no wonder that he's been embraced by so many others. In fact, I long for that kind of collaborator. And you know, Alex, collaborating is hard. I mean, can you imagine what I have to put up with collaborating with you? And you know, as we said in our episode with David Cross, you, as in Alex, have to put your ego aside and put the end product first, not your own individual input. So let's be specific about this podcast. It is a Milwaukee Talkies production. You and I are the co-hosts, which means it's done by you and me, right? No one who's listening knows who did what. They just know they're hearing great product. Yeah, you know, we're co-hosts, but it's like Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon were co-hosts. No, I don't think so. I think one of us is pulling the weight here and another guy is just kind of feasting on the rewards. And I'm not going to say who it is. Our listeners aren't stupid. They know when they laugh who to attribute that comment to. I think you're feasting and putting on the weight in this podcast, but that's the whole other conversation. Alex, go to your little part that you write, the credits, let everyone go get something to drink, and then they'll come back for my grand finale, okay? I think that's a great plan, and let's stick to it, Ed. I mean, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) Over and out. Okay, listeners, as Alan so graciously shared just now, Here's where you can hear my limited contribution to Too Much Effing Perspective, even though this podcast was my idea. Thanks to Dan Wilson for indulging my walk down memory lane, and Alan for giving us a video tour of his house, formerly occupied by real talent, Carol King. Thanks also to Jim Grant and Talia Kazarian of JGM Artist Management and Joe Civic at the Missing Peace Group for helping to bring Dan to the TMEP show. Too Much Epping Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Our editor is Gretchen Kilby. Our composer is J.K. Harrison. Please follow, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at TMEP Show. And join our mailing list on our website at TMEPshow.com. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. This is Alan Keller. On behalf of Alex Hoffman and myself, thanks for listening. Dan Wilson has provided songs for countless artists, and we thought we'd let you hear a song of mine, Raven, off the Falling Willenda's second album, Be Little, which has been covered by a few artists itself. And I'm sure part of the reason is, it's a love song I wrote for my wife when we just started dating. I know, aw. Anyway, see you next time on Too Much Effing Perspective. Raven, so-